Hi, I would like to invite you to attend our second annual Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Tyler. We are going to host the Congress this year on June 9th and 10th at Bishop Gorman High School in Tyler. Our theme for this year is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. We will have keynotes in English by Dr. John Bergsma from Franciscan University of Steubenville and in Spanish by Bishop Daniel Flores from the Diocese of Brownsville. To register or to find more information, you can go to stphilipinstitute.org. Thanks. In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue and finish our discussion of Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, and bring an end to our entire study of the major documents of the Second Vatican Council. In this episode, in a particular way, we'll focus on the Council's call for a biblical renewal and give you some suggestions and tools to help you do that in your own life. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation at the St. Philip Institute. If you are listening to the audio-only version of this episode, I have to warn you, you are missing out on a feast for your eyes. Um, so come follow us on YouTube and subscribe. I have got a whole bunch of show-and-tell stuff here that I will get to at the end of this episode. So stick around um, for that. So this episode is actually a really, really big deal for us and for me. Um, it's our last episode in a series covering the four major documents of Vatican II. So um, we have done several episodes on Sacrosanctum Concilium, Gaudium et Spes, Luminate, uh, Luminate dang it, Lumen Gentium, uh, and now we are uh, on our second and last episode talking about Dei Verbum, um, which is the dogmatic constitution on sacred scripture or on divine revelation. And um, what I want to focus in on uh, in this episode really is the, the very last chapter of Dei Verbum. Um, so there are six chapters in the document. The first three chapters talk about what is revelation, how is it transmitted, so that's chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 3 talks about um, the inspiration and interpretation of Scripture. Chapter 4 is very short, a little statement on the Old Testament. Chapter 5, similar little statement on the New Testament. Um, but chapter 6, I think, is, is a really, really important place for us to kind of just sink down in and spend a little bit of time on. Uh, and the, the title of the sixth chapter of Dei Verbum is uh, Sacred Scripture in the Life of the Church. And uh, I, I've mentioned previously, uh, Bishop Barron uh, makes the argument that uh, for the entire Second Vatican Council, Dei Verbum is the document that really kind of pieces it all together. And I think you could make that argument uh, certainly 
You can make the argument that Lumen Gentium is the the main one, or you know, you can kind of pick any document. But for the sake of argument, you know, if it's if it's Dei Verbum that's the one that really matters, then certainly the reason that you would have to that you that you could make that claim is because of the final chapter, chapter six of this Constitution. In that chapter, uh, the Council Fathers do a number of things. One really beautiful thing that they do is talk about how important the role of Scripture is in the life of the Church and in the liturgy. There's also um, some discussion about making the Scriptures more accessible to the faithful, and there's some language and discussion about, in particular for priests and religious, how the Scriptures need to be sort of at the center of their lives and not merely as an object of study, right, but as sort of an object of devotion. Uh, and and there's really this this very serious sort of plea um, for Catholics in the modern world to take the scriptures and integrate them more deeply into their lives. So if you've ever, for instance, heard someone say that, you know, Catholics aren't supposed to read the Bible, uh, Catholics don't don't have Bibles or, you know, whatever, uh, there are a lot of places that I could point you to say, well, if you read this document, it'll show you that. But in Vatican II, the, the sixth chapter of Dei Verbum just makes it very, very clear that for Catholics, the scriptures really should have a central place in our lives. Um, so just as you could say in some of the other documents, you know, uh, there's the call to the universal, the universal call to holiness really shapes the document. I think in Dei Verbum, there's a very pastoral element here to ask Catholics and plead with them to let the scriptures become part of the center of our lives. Let me read you a couple of sentences here from chapter uh, chapter six, but paragraph twenty one. Uh, they kind of give you an indication of like the strong language that the church is using to describe how foundationally important the scriptures ought to be for us. This is paragraph twenty one. The church has always venerated the divine scriptures just as she venerates the body of the Lord. Since, especially in the sacred liturgy, she unceasingly receives and offers to the faithful the bread of life from the table both of God's Word and of Christ's body. That is such strong language for the important role of Scripture. To say we venerate the Scriptures as we venerate the body of the Lord is not—I mean, the, the Council's not using that language kind of like, Oh, I didn't mean to speak that strongly, right? How do we venerate the Lord's body? We we adore the body of the Lord. We actually go to adoration, right? We venerate the scriptures in a similar way. This that is very profound language. And I don't think a lot of Catholics are probably comfortable even maybe hearing hearing someone speak that way about the scriptures, but that's the church speaking about the scriptures, right? It's it's sort of the church kind of waking us up to the fact that this is how important the Bible, the scriptures are for us as Catholics. And we see this most clearly in the liturgy. Now, take a step back from this one document and think about the scope of the whole council. The first document promulgated was Sacrosanctum Concilium on the liturgy, right? And in the document on the liturgy, these are connected very closely. There are a lot of indications that the scriptures need to be brought forth more clearly and given more room to sort of shine in the Mass, that the readings need to be taken from a wider portion of Scripture, that there need to be more readings, that the liturgy includes the homily, which should be based on the scriptures. All of this is, is going on in the first document on the liturgy. 
Then at the end of the council, we come back to the role of the scriptures, and we have this, this notion of venerating the divine scriptures as we venerate the body of the Lord, because especially in the sacred liturgy, the faithful are receiving the bread of life and the word of the Lord from one and the same table. Now, another quote from the same chapter, or same paragraph, rather, 21, therefore, like the Christian religion itself, all preaching of the church must be nourished and regulated by sacred scripture. Listen to this line. For in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children with great love and speaks with them. And the force and power in the Word of God is so great that it stands as the support and energy of the church, the strength of faith for her sons, the food of the soul, the pure and everlasting source of spiritual life. So both the notion that the Father comes to speak lovingly to his children in the Scriptures, I think that's one of my favorite uh, quotations from Vatican II. It's also it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the idea that this the Scriptures are the source and, and strength and support for us, it's very similar to the language that the Church uses in the sacred uh, document on, the, on the, the liturgy about the importance of the Eucharist, right? So there's this very elevated way of talking about the Scriptures and their critical importance in the life of the faithful, especially as it relates to the liturgy. And notice, all, the Council says, all preaching must be nourished and regulated by sacred scripture. So, uh, again, repeating some of the ideas from earlier in the council. Next, you see um, a call for easy access to sacred scripture. The council fathers specifically mentioned that new translations of the, of the Bible need to be made, and that this should be done with an emphasis on the original texts and ancient manuscripts. So one of the things that's sort of a hangover from both the Council of Trent and Vatican I that you still see in the early 20th century, um, late 1800s, and certainly uh, certainly in the late 1800s and still kind of carrying on in the 20th century, is a, a little bit of an overemphasis on the role of the Vulgate translation, translation of the Bible, which is a Latin translation of the Bible, um, many centuries old, but it doesn't go back nearly as far as the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. That translation was, was given some pride of place, um, and we don't have time to go into all the reasons for that, but the council here is trying to say that, that that's not necessarily going to be the standard for translation that we should consider making new translations, we should consider working in an ecumenical way if we can, or at least try to find ways to work with other Christians um, in producing, you know, up-to-date translations, um, and that when we do that, it ought to be based on the ancient manuscripts. There's also an explicit call for all of us, all Christians, to study the writings of the Church Fathers so as to help us more adequately explain and understand the Scriptures. Um, one of my um, professors in graduate school made made an interesting remark, and something that I've just continued to remember since then is that, you know, if we lost every ancient manuscript of the of the New Testament, and it's not true is true of the Old Testament, but it is true of the New Testament. If we lost all of the manuscripts that we have, and and they just were completely gone, you would be able to recreate something like ninety five percent of the text of the New Testament just based on the writings of the early church fathers, because that was how central the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament and the Gospels, were for them in their ministry of teaching and preaching. Um, and that should give us pause to think about, wow, that's how central the scriptures were for them. Why, why is that the case for us? Maybe it is, 
I suspect for a lot of Catholics, that's probably not been our experience. Listen to this from paragraph 24 uh, about the role of Scripture in theology, then in preaching, catechesis, and really in all Christian instruction. This again, paragraph 24 of Dei Verbum. For the sacred Scriptures contain the Word of God, and since they are inspired, really are the Word of God. And so the study of the sacred page is, as it were, the soul of sacred theology. The study of the sacred page is the soul of sacred theology. That's really, really important, and a challenge to maybe the way that theology was being done in the first part of the 20th century, even up into the Council. The Church wants to restore Scripture to the center of all theology, so not just Bible scholars need to be reading the Scriptures and studying them, but even moral theologians, people who deal in Church history, dogmatics, right? Whatever form of theology you're you know, doing, ecclesiology, the scriptures need to be the soul of that theological endeavor. Continuing the same paragraph, 24, by the same word of scripture, the ministry of the word also, that is pastoral preaching, catechetics, and all Christian instruction in which the liturgical homily must hold the foremost place is nourished in a healthy way and flourishes in a holy way. So our teaching, especially the homily, but any form of teaching, needs to be nourished by the scriptures. This is something that I think in a particular way, even today in East Texas, it's a little easy for us as Catholics to sometimes want to be, we're doing catechesis, we're doing sacramental preparation or RCIA or whatever it is we're doing, to want to hit all the distinctively Catholic notes, to talk about Mary, to talk about pilgrimages, rosaries, devotions, liturgy, saints. All those things are really good. They're also very distinctively Catholic. If you, you know, went to a Protestant church and started talking about all of those things, you'd probably get some strange looks. But just because we need to sound our distinctively Catholic note doesn't mean we should refrain from putting the scriptures at the heart of our work of catechesis and preaching, teaching, instruction. So the church is saying very clearly the scriptures ought to be the soul of sacred theology, and they ought to be at the center of all of our teaching and all of our Christian instruction. And I think even now, some 60 years after the council, we still need that reminder. It's okay to really ground ourselves in the scriptures, and in fact, we need to do that. Um, there's also, as, as, as you go later in, in the chapter, uh, a special call for clergy and religious to hold fast to the Scriptures, and, and especially there's this clarification. They're not just supposed to study them. Well, that's good, but, to, but really the goal is to live in accordance with the Scriptures. So this is paragraph 25. Remember, prayer should accompany the reading of sacred Scriptures so that God and man may talk together. For when we speak to him, for, sorry, for we speak to him when we pray. We hear him when we read the divine sayings. So there's there's a very serious call here in this in this chapter, again, for a more active engagement with the scriptures and the life of the church. That includes the laity, but there's a special emphasis on 
teaching responsibilities for bishops, clergy, and religious. So what I wanted to do with this this episode, this kind of rounding out the whole discussion on Vatican II, is, is really kind of lean into this emphasis that the, the Council has for a biblical renewal. If you ever read anything about Vatican II that's been written in the last 20 or 30 years, you'll you'll see constantly that the, church, the, the Council called for a biblical renewal. The Council called for a biblical renewal, updated the liturgy to give us more scriptures, and, and you know, made a call for renewal. But there's a real question about whether or not that happened or not. Certainly, in some circles, the biblical renewal was taken very seriously, and there is a tremendous amount of fruit to show for it. But it's still not the case that, you know, if you just talk to your typical Catholic, that they know much about the Scriptures, that they're spending much time with them, that they've studied them, that they're praying with them. So I wanted to to just kind of make a few recommendations, and and this is sort of a show-and-tell episode here, show-and-tell part of the episode of different resources you might want to think about using— to take this biblical renewal seriously in your own life. And I'm going to just kind of go through the things I've got around me and not in, in in any sort of, you know, coherent order about this one's the most important and then this one's in last place, but just a bunch of stuff that I thought of right as, right as we were about to record. Oh, I'm going to go grab some of these books off my bookshelf. Um, so the first thing I would recommend, and I do think that, the, that I really would put this in first place, and then the rest of it's just going to be kind of luck of the draw, and that's to consider the Liturgy of the Hours. So this is uh, our current volume. We're in the Lenten and Easter season, so it's volume two of the Liturgy the Hours. If you have not heard of the Liturgy of the Hours and you're Catholic, that's a crime. Someone should tell you about it. I'll tell you a little bit about it right now. It is a form of prayer that engages in a particular way the Psalms. There are other parts of the of the, the Scriptures that are read, but the Psalms are shining really brightly in the Liturgy of the Hours. There are different offices throughout the day. Priests have to pray all of the Liturgy of the Hours every day. There's morning prayer, office of readings, midday prayer, mid-morning prayer, mid-afternoon prayer, there's evening prayer, night prayer, a lot of different things, right? You don't have to do all of it. That may be way too much for you to bite off and try to say, oh, I'm going to do all of the offices. Pick one. Say, I'm going to do the office of readings for you know, the rest of the Easter season. I'm going to do evening prayer for the rest of the evening se- of rest of the Easter season, or I'm just going to do night prayer or whatever. But if you pick one office, my that's my recommendation, pick one and say, I'm going to stick with it. If you're hopping around one day, you do the office of readings, next day you do morning prayer, next day you do evening prayer. That's not going to build as much. You're not going to get as much familiarity with sort of the rhythm of these prayers. But the reason that this can be helpful for you in understanding the scriptures especially is if you are able to do this long-term, you stick with it for more than like a week, okay, two to three to four months, you start getting the hang of it, and you start being able to see how the church gives us the Psalms as a language of prayer and unites it to the liturgical calendar in a way that can be very powerful. Praying the Liturgy of the Hours through Advent, through Lent, through Easter, those particular seasons, you can see really, really, really strongly how the church is kind of giving us a pedagogical formation and saying, hey, it's Lent. We're going to read about the Passover for two months, you know, well, not two months, Lent's not that long. For four weeks, we're going to read about Passover, right? For the Easter season, we're going to, right now, you're reading in the Office of Readings, a book of Revelation. Something that you can get for free online, uh, but the books are, are much better, although pricey. So the Liturgy of the Hours, one really good way to take a deeper dive into the Scripture and to do it in a way that's not just study. This is devotional. This is prayer. This is letting the Lord speak to you in the words of divine revelation. So I highly recommend giving that a shot. All right. This is my Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, the New Testament. If you're looking for a single volume New Testament commentary, 
I would strongly recommend this one. It has a lot of great features. What you'll see, and I don't know if you'll even be able to see this on the camera, but I'm gonna open it up here to sort of an example page. The top part of this page is the actual text of the Bible, and there's a line below the line is notes, information, explanations, telling you what some of this stuff means. And in many places, many many of these, these notes are telling you if you were to go and look at, say, the book of Exodus, chapter 24, you'd understand this passage better because what the author is trying to communicate here is closely linked to something that happened elsewhere in the Bible. This is great. It's got the entire New Testament in it. There are maps. There's introductions to each book of the Bible or each book of the New Testament. Uh, there are word studies, charts, just a lot of really, really great stuff. Um, and it's a single volume. You can get it in, like, I think this is fake leather. I can't imagine I'd ever buy a real leather book with my own money. Um, uh, but it's, it comes in paperback, hardback, all, all kind of different uh, editions. There are Old Testament uh, volumes available as well, but it's not been bound in a single collection yet. All right, these two are Word on Fi the Word on Fire Bible. Um, so this one, these are the two volumes that are currently available. This is the Gospels, and this is the Acts of the Apostles, all the Catholic letters, and the Book of Revelation, so the rest of the New Testament. They describe, uh, Word on Fire describes this as a cathedral in print, and I'm going to just find some sort of image here. There's, there's tons of them um, to kind of give you a sense of what that means and why, why they, they say this. So here's one sort of example. Okay, and you don't need to be able to see exactly what the image is. What they've done is sort of illuminate the manuscript. There are commentaries, but not nearly as many comments and sort of explanatory notes as you'd find in the Ignatius Bible uh, that I just showed you. But there are a lot of ways in which this, this Bible gives you something to meditate on, something visually to look at as you contemplate what you've just read. Um, it's really, really well done. Uh, and I, I, I can't recommend it strongly enough if you're not the kind of person that gets distracted by colors. Uh, that actually is me. I get distracted by colors. It's, it's a little hard for me to, to get what they're wanting to give out of this, but it is a fantastic resource for sure. All right, here is uh, International Critical Commentary. I don't even know this particular volume that well, but my, my, my point in bringing this here is to let you know there are tons and tons and tons of complete series of commentaries on the Bible. As Catholics, we sometimes, I think, we don't even know that those exist. It's a whole genre. It's a type of book that you can get. You can find old Bible commentaries sometimes at half-price books or, you know, garage sales or whatever. And, it, and I, anytime I get a chance, I, I just pick another one up, pick another one up, because it's so much easier for me if I'm going to be studying Scripture for a class that I'm going to teach or something to go look at a physical book than to look things up online. Even when I have access to some online resources that are really excellent, I like the books, even the smell of them. Oh, that smells like an old library, and I love it. So, uh, Sacra Pagina is another commentary set. Um, just something to be aware of that, like, there's whole—it's a whole movement, a whole style of book called biblical commentaries. Now, this one is not a particularly Catholic in 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 its outlook, but there are still a lot of value in reading a lot of commentaries. So, if you really want to, for instance, take a look at one gospel, right? Get the Ignatius 
New, Ca- uh, New Testament, the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible New Testament, and get some single volumes. So here's, here's one example. This is the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Uh, you can get the entire New Testament. I don't know how far they've gotten along in the Old Testament or if they've even started that yet. The entire set is very affordable as, as far as biblical commentaries go. But these, these ones I really love because in addition to having the biblical text, and of course, having lots of explanatory notes and footnotes, there's also at the end of each sort of section uh, a reflection and a set of questions to sort of help you take your study of the Scripture and make it not mere study for your erudition and learning, but to help it funnel you into prayer. So I've got a, a couple of volumes here of the, uh, I've got the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. They use different authors for each book, so you're getting uh, a little bit different flavor depending on, you know, which author you're looking at. This is another, this is a Catholic commentary set as well. The uh, This is the Navarre Bible. Excellent, excellent stuff. I really love this. This is from the University of Navarre uh, in Spain, um, and I think they put it together in the early 90s. Great stuff, very, very faithful um, to the Church. And this is the Pentateuch, so this is the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, They've got different versions, so you can get, you know, hardback versions that kind of take you through the whole Scriptures. They have a single-volume New Testament. Um, They have individual volumes of each book of the New Testament as well. Um, Really, really good. A lot of reference to the Church Fathers in there. I, I love that set. A couple of general things. So this is what's called a concordance, Um, and this really helps you if you're looking for a particular idea in the Bible or a particular verse, right? Um, You can say, okay, I want to read, for instance, here about guiltiness, guilt, right? It's, I don't know, dozens of references to the concept of guilt in the Scriptures, and it tells you where to look to find more about that idea. Um, So if, if you, it's sort of, it's a dictionary in some sort of way of the Bible. Like you look at a, a keyword or an idea or a name or something, and it just sends you back to the scriptures. These are the places to look. And again, could you do that by Googling and looking online? Yeah, but it's not as good of an experience. This is, I think, old fat books are good. Books are good, people. If you ever come to my office, you'll see I'm deeply committed to that idea that books are good because they're everywhere, and I don't have any more room for them, but I'm constantly taking more. Um, all right, so this is a concordance. This one's by Emmaus Road Publishing, but there's a bunch of different ones. Um, this is a, another single-volume thing that's kind of easy to get, uh, easy to find on sale places. The New Jerome Biblical Commentary or the Jerome Biblical Commentary. Um, put together by a group of Catholic scholars, and it's sort of a dictionary kind of approach in that, you know, you're looking at sort of encyclopedia, I guess is a a better word, encyclopedia sort of articles on different topics. So you can look up scripture passages, you can look up also particular books and say, okay, for instance, this is the Gospel according to John, and it's got a bibliography at the beginning of sources you might want to look at if you really want to dig into the Gospel of John, and then goes through an overview of sort of the sources, the background, the author, the dating, um, general features of the gospel, uh, and, you know, some of the key themes. Uh, and then it has its own commentary. So this is the, uh, you know, Old and New Testament. So in a single volume, you got a lot packed in there, obviously, because it's a single volume and it's the entire Bible. You know, it's limited in how much it can do, right? Um but if you want to just kind of one, one thing to hold in your hand, I'd say maybe take this and get the uh, Ignatius Catholic New Testament commentary, and you have sort of something with the Old Testament, something with the New Testament, one way to go. 
Uh, in front of in front of me here, you've got a few books that are kind of a, a different approach. So these are all sort of like general scripture study, but then there's things that you can do, books that, that are going to give you sort of an overview of a particular theme and they're grounded really well in the scriptures. This is one of my teachers, uh, Dr. Brant Petrie, Jesus and the Jewish, Ro- Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. So if you really want to dig into the Eucharist in particular, Brant will take you through a lot of biblical texts within this book, right? So there is one thing about studying scriptures to like go to the scriptures, study it, read commentaries on it, try and, you know, kind of learn it. And another way to, to, to kind of approach it is look at people who that's their life and they've written books on particular topics that are all grounded in the scriptures, read some of their stuff and see how their their learning can help you um, kind of grow deeper in your understanding of scripture. This is one of my fa- favorites from Scott Hahn, A Father Who Keeps His Promises. It's sort of a, a, a massive overview of the entire story of salvation, the economy of salvation. Uh, and if you like puns, you will love this book. For instance, here is one, one uh, subheading, The Rocky Road to Glory. Every subheading is a pun. Um, so if you either like scripture or puns, I would highly recommend uh, Scott Hahn's A Father Who Keeps His Promises. If you like Scott Hahn, but maybe you're not as big into puns, you could try the grown-up version of that book, Kinship by Covenant, which was his doctoral dissertation. It's like 400 pages, and it's pretty intense. But if you, want, if you, if you read this and you thought, I want to know more, I would say... Get this awesome, awesome book, Kinship by Covenant. Here is a great one. This is Jesus of Nazareth, Volume 1. There's three volumes by Pope Benedict XVI. This is a real gold mine because Benedict XVI was a scholar and a professor for so long. He is presenting to you an image of Jesus, the life of Jesus of Nazareth through the language of the Scriptures, and it's in conversation with modern biblical scholarship, sometimes in ways saying, hey, this scholar has gotten this right, and other times saying, hey, you know what? The tradition of the church gives us a better answer here than mere scholarly opinion. So it's a really, really fantastic book um, to understand Jesus and his ministry better, and also to really kind of get a sense of what's that biblical renewal that the council called for? What would that look like? It would look like this. This is a fantastic book. If you, you know, are afraid, like, I don't know, that's a big book, try the third volume, which is just on the infancy accounts in Luke's gospel, Jesus's, you know, birth and infancy narratives. It's very, very readable, and it gives you sort of a window into the thought of Benedict XVI. If you like the thought of Benedict XVI, or you think, I can't understand Benedict XVI, I have the perfect book for you. Try Scott Hahn's Covenant and Communion, which gives you an overview of the theology of uh, Benedict XVI and the way he approaches the scriptures. All right, got one left here. This is so fun. I'm really—I should do this more often, I'm sure that uh, it would be frustrating to people who listen to the audio only, which is why you should subscribe to our YouTube channel. This is a commentary of St. Thomas Aquinas. This is on the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews. So if you are really serious about wanting to learn more about the Bible— one really, really cool way that you could do that is look at Aquinas' commentaries that we have uh, available in English. A lot of them are available. I don't think they've all been translated yet. But something you may not know about St. Thomas Aquinas, 
his like his day job basically was to teach the scriptures. He was a master of the sacred page. That was his official title. That was his job was to teach students at the University of Paris, teach them on the scriptures. And then he wrote the Summa Theologiae, the Summa Contra Gentiles, and his commentaries on Aristotle and and all of the other stuff that he did. That was uh, kind of like that was his side hustle. That's what he did for fun uh, on the weekends. So. Uh, it's really, really great to, to look at a mind like Aquinas working through the scriptures, because I think a lot of times we get the image that Aquinas was just interested in abstract theological ideas, but actually his main task was preaching and teaching on the scriptures. And you know, as a saint, uh, he was quite good at it, so I'd really recommend it. So again, these are—this is really fun for me. This is just a, sort of my own personal uh, way of kind of inviting you to take that call from the Second Vatican Council to enter more deeply into uh, a relationship with the Scriptures and, you know, give you some tools to do that. It's one thing to sit here and say, Vatican II wants you to put the Scriptures in a really important place in your life. Make it the center of your life. Well, how do you do that? Well, these are some ways that you could do that. Is that the only way? No, but it's. I feel like it's good to give you some, some practical resources and examples. So that wraps up our discussion on Dei Verbum and wraps up our whole discussion of the Second Vatican Council. Thanks for sticking around, all five of you who listened to each of these episodes. God bless.